Welcome to A Thousand Tiny Steps. I'm Barb Higgins, and in this podcast, I'll share personal stories of great joy and tragedy in the steps that brought me there. I have become adept at tracing them backward to find the origin of an event, good or bad, that has affected my life. I have gone from being on top of the world with Division I All-American success to being unable to get out of bed with the grief of losing a child and everything in between. I am painfully honest, which can make people uncomfortable, but discomfort brings growth and oftentimes tragedy brings joy. So tie, buckle, slip on, release up your shoes and join me as we begin our thousand tiny steps. Hey everybody, Barb Higgins here on a beautiful Sunday afternoon in February, beginning episode 25 of A Thousand Tiny Steps. I have a few things to share before I sort of get started into the meat and potatoes of this particular episode. For those of you who might just be starting out now, I'm retracing my steps, a thousand tiny steps back to where I can sort of see where my life took a turn and led to the fact that Molly would die of this undiagnosed brain tumor. As with a lot of mothers who have lost children and suffered this particular trauma, the why, the why, the why doesn't go away. And so many people, I'm sure a lot of my listeners would probably think Barbara put it down just put it down and walk away. And at some point, perhaps I'll be able to put some of this down. But in, in the meantime, in current time, retracing my steps and walking back and re-examining the choices I made in my life is incredibly cathartic and helpful in sort of helping me remember in a more cognitive way all of the things that were going on in my life leading up to Molly's death. That's sort of where I'm at right now in terms of the why of this. I was working out this morning with some awesome women at my CrossFit gym. We do like a Sunday fun day where I open up the gym and anyone who wants to come can come. And we all sort of do our own thing. And I have a good friend, Leah. So hi, Leah, if you're listening. And she and I just click and we really are, can be supportive and listening to one another's struggles. And she was a wonderful ear for me this morning as I sort of shared with her all that I was going through, both in my day-to-day life and in the recording of this podcast, and how so many of these things link to the beginning of the end of Molly. I have a hard time. Sometimes I miss her in a bad way sometimes that's not rational at all, but I have to sort of just ease my way through it. And in the process of this podcast as well, now that I'm sort of clean and sober, so to speak, and can step back and look at the 600 plus days I lived in this haze of, of inebriation or being high or just out of it. Like I remember shortly after I lost my job, waking up, opening my eyes and thinking, how did I get here? A year ago, I was, you know, beginning year 20 of my teaching career and coaching cross country. And I was just so excited and, you know, thinking maybe I'm halfway through my journey in the district and, you know, or maybe, you know, getting ready to do something else. Everything was good. I had this really, really good, solid life. And, you know, a year later, I'm lying in bed with no job and humiliated, just decimated with shock and trauma and shame and grief. And I just was dumbfounded. I remember it took me a long time to really wrap my head around the fact that this had happened to me. I saw a status on Facebook today about a mother whose child's daycare is now closed again for a few days. And so then she has to not work because she's got to stay home with her son. And she said, the blessing is more one-on-one time. And so she had to look at the positive. And it brought back all those times that I spent with Gracie and Molly, just doing things. School vacations became staycations. And, you know, we just did these wonderful things together. You know, it just puts me in that, time frame of what was happening at that time. And those were some triggers for me. So today's February 6th. And on my Facebook, I shared a bunch of memories from February 6th. And, you know, the year 2016, so from January 1st to May 7th, those were Molly's last days of that year. And then it was over. 
And we didn't know we were marching toward her death. And so every one of these memories, as we get closer and closer to the events of March and April, and then her death in May, become a bit high, high, strong and intense. And I start to hear like a ringing in my ears when I think about it. So I remember now this particular weekend, I went to Marblehead to see Roy. And I told Kenny that's where I was going. And there had been a big snowstorm. It was beautiful out. And Roy had bought me a pair of boots, these blue sort of winter boots. And we spent the weekend. And I remember when I was leaving, was just honest with Kenny at this point. Like, it doesn't make any sense to save these, you know, I'm not in a relationship with this person I am. And I just said, you know, I'm just figuring out ways, you know, to end it. And I didn't know what I wanted to end. I just knew that I needed to end my life at that time. I was also under a lot of pressure from my boss at the school I was teaching at, you know, more time, spend more time. I didn't get to spend time with my family when my kids were little. You need to spend more time at school. And it was really a very, very, I look back on it now and I think, how was I sucked in so much at that time? And I, I just think that as I've been reading this book, The Body Keeps the Score, as I've been reading it and really understanding the hardwiring of a traumatized brain, I get it. And I get why. I can find myself in these traumatic situations and wake up wondering, how did I get here? That particular weekend, it was February 6, 2016, all these amazing pictures came up. One is Roy taking pictures. He's a massive picture taker. He takes them all the time. And I made a little funny comment. One is me sitting on a bench. It's just this snowy bench at a, at a place in Marblehead right on the water. And it was beautiful. And we're sitting on this bench. And I, I took pictures of Roy on the bench as well. We laid down and it was just funny. We're just sitting right on the snow. They're great pictures. Every once in a while, He'll post one of those pictures as well. It's a nice, it's a nice memory. And then a snowy, snowy tree. I just remember vividly that particular weekend down there. And I remember coming home and I hadn't said too much to Gracie and Molly about the depth of my feelings for Roy. They knew that that's where I was. They knew that we had a friendship. He had come to a couple of concerts of theirs, orchestra and string concerts. We had had dinner together a couple of times. We went down to have a museum day and it ended in disaster. Gracie and Molly got really freaked out and didn't want to go. And it was a disaster. Roy really lost, really lost his temper. It was a horrible day. These were in the weeks and months leading up to weeks and days, sort of leading up to Molly's death. And this particular visit was a good one. It was just us. But I remember coming home and talking about it, showing Molly some pictures of some pretty houses we took when we were out walking around and everything. And she saw this sort of, you know, romantic type picture of Roy and myself. And she got really upset with me, really, really upset. And just sent me a text about, you know, I knew this and, you know, and of course, this is her stability. And so I felt terrible. And at this time as well, Kenny and I had finally gotten an apartment, but it took a while. And we weren't solidly in this apartment yet. Some other pictures that came up in my memories were going to my friend Marty's house and getting a futon there. And Roy helped pack it into my car to put in the apartment. And so that was the couch in the apartment for a couple of years after Molly died. Kenny's son, Kenny Jr., lived there for a couple of years. When we're moving the futon, all of these things are happening as I'm trying to really make decisions and make my life okay. And of course, not knowing that everything would blow up. Three months from that, from this day, February 6th to May 6th, May 6th was when the state declared Molly dead. These things take on meaning for me that they might not for someone else. And if you're listening and you have events that stick with you or dates or Facebook memories, you know, social media is interesting. I think back to my childhood and having a pen pal was the best thing ever. You put a letter in the mailbox and it could be two weeks before you got a letter back, but I'd get the letter and I'd go sit. Like I'd sometimes I'd climb a tree to read my mail. It was such a slower, more deliberate time. You could talk on the phone, but the phone was in your kitchen or in your hallway. Some people had two phones, you know, landlines were it. And so this ability to sort of instantly see people and connect with people anywhere and then instantly be reminded of what you did on this day seven years ago or six years ago now it is. Those memories, when I can't sleep at night is when I look at my phone. I just had all these memories of February 6th, 2016. 
the bookends of grief, I was just marching toward a disaster and I didn't know it. And, you know, it's that movie, The Sixth Sense. I don't know if it was on a hundred years ago. Bruce Willis, Haley Joe Osment, I think was the little boy. He could see people that had died, passed away. I see dead people. You watch the whole movie and you don't get it. And then you rewatch it and you see, oh my gosh, yes, yes, he was dead the whole time. You don't realize what you're seeing until someone points it out and then it's so clear. And that, I guess that's hindsight. And I look back on so many decisions I made between my job loss and Molly's death that I think, oh, if I could go back and change that decision, maybe she would have lived. And I can't. All of the meditational teachings and all of the prophets and teachers, spiritual teachers and leaders say, you know, you can't change yesterday and you can't change tomorrow. You can just live today. And I get it. But you can't put yesterday in a box and forget about it because it reminds you it stays there. And I think that especially with trauma, which so much of it can be repressed right away, your brain gets hardwired. Made a comment in my group, The Nest. It was one of these things about, you know, if you're drinking your tea, I may have said this already, if you're drinking your tea, but you're thinking about the next thing, you're not living. And the comment that KK said, well, maybe it's time to decide to live. And I've decided to live a hundred times. If it were that easy, I would have enjoyed my tea by now. <laughs> these experiences and sharing them openly, not sharing them silently and secretively. The whole world knows, well, the whole world, my whole world knows all that I went through and the people involved and important in the journey of my journey from job loss to Molly loss to try to rebuild a life and now having Jack and bringing him here. The day got off to a pretty intense start, I have to say. The other piece that sort of ties into this set of memories and then looking back on some of the things I've shared in the podcast, my experience losing my coaching job in Bo, the charter school and that and my loss of my friendship with Stephanie, Robin and the loss of our friendship and people that came back from World War II and then from Vietnam. And if they had sort of one traumatic event that decimated them, they would often relive it, reenact it. And it talked about a man that felt guilty because he survived this horrible attack and his best friend didn't and his, you know, brigade or troop, or whatever, didn't. And he would hold up a store every year on the anniversary of this. He'd go in with his finger in his pocket and hold up a store and demand cash. And he would stand around and wait for the police to come and arrest him. And he would, you know, get arrested and all this. And it was his sort of self-punishing way of dealing with the fact that he survived an attack that his best friend didn't in the war. And once he was able to really remember the incident, the traumatic incident in a concrete way, he was able to move on from needing to reenact it. And so I thought, reenact, reenact, reenact. And when I think back to my job loss and the years from losing my job in the school district until now, I have certainly several times jumped in to help people just like I jumped in to help the family that ultimately cost me my job. Well, the family didn't, but one of the people in the family. I realized that what I've done is just recreate for myself, me going in and <laughs> choosing the wrong person to help or helping too much or overstepping a boundary. And maybe, and maybe this is me with my boundary issues and I shouldn't jump in and offer to help, help people like this. I really do try to take ownership of it, not point the fingers because I don't think that's helpful to anybody. I certainly won't take the blame for things that are not my fault, but I will not, I won't also point fingers. It's not right. So reliving and repeating, reliving and repeating the trauma. You look at survivors of sexual abuse and oftentimes they become prostitutes or they have 9,000 lovers or they, they have this very, very unhealthy alcohol and drug addicted lifestyle. So they're just recreating. There was a chapter in the book about a girl that was in hospital, you know, a locked facility and she would get out and go to the city and find people to do drugs with. And she would get beaten and raped again and again and again. She just kept putting herself back in this situation. And the question that the doctors asked was, why did that seem a safer alternative for her than the facility that was trying to help her? 
And, you know, it isn't about safety at that point. When you're in the middle of being sexually abused, there's nothing safe about it. Nothing at all. What's happening to your body doesn't feel safe. Your inability to stop it doesn't feel safe. If you know the person doing it to you and now they're doing this, that doesn't feel safe. Safety is this elusive thing that doesn't exist. So I try really hard to really look back and analyze a lot of my decisions and to look at the people that chose me because people like me often attract predatory people and unhealthy people. And I'll have to say this 9,000 times over, Kenny is Winnie the Pooh in skin. If I had to go through all the men in my life, Kenny and David are probably the two of the nicest people in the world. David was my college boyfriend and we were together on and off for about six or seven years. Nicest guy in the world, I'll tell you right now, would not hurt a flea. Kind, kind, kind. And that's Kenny. Those two are very similar in that regard. Kenny can lose his temper and say hurtful things, but to consciously set out a plan to hurt somebody, no, it's not, it's not in his nature. Here I am sort of pondering this, this six-year period or five-year period, actually, five and a half years, and some of the steps I took that could have prevented Molly's death. I will say when, when I lost my job and I was living this period of time, the girls were really immersed in dance. It was incredibly expensive. I was selling things and working 9,000 hours. I missed half of their dance competitions because I was timing road races or, or officiating track meets to make the money to pay for it. I will say that that Miss Cindy was unbelievably supportive and helpful in my inability to always be current with my bill. I paid $53.12 this week and $24 next week. I just gave her money. I just emptied my pockets at, at the end of the week. That was kind of what we decided I would do and just try to keep making payments. And I paid dance before I paid a lot of things. I remember that Gracie and Molly had this amazing, amazing life and that there was a year, I think they were maybe, they were maybe eight and 10, maybe third and fifth grade. And they wanted to go to Disney. And so I priced it out and when you're not like an annual pass holder or you don't have a lot of flexibility, you have to go and you can go. It was about the cost of a year of dance for one of them. And if we stayed for two weeks, it was a year of dance for two of them. So I said, we can go, but you have to take a year off from dance because the money that we pay every month to Concord Dance Academy, after a year, that big chunk of money will buy our plane tickets and pay for our hotel and pay for Disney. And we can spend 10 days at Disney. We're going on a two-week vacation. It'll be great. So they thought about it. They, you know, and I said, look, I, I'm very, very flexible, I, but I don't have time to get yet another job and to pay for this. And we had no credit cards. I was really trying to live frugally at that time. <laughs> they came back and said, you know what? We love dance, mommy. We can go to Disney when we're older. I have profound regrets now about not taking them to Disney because they wanted to go so badly. And I remember Bethany, a good friend of ours, the September before Molly died, 2015, the last September of her life, Bethany lived at Disney for a month. She rented an apartment and lived down there and just spent the month at Disney with her kids. She invited Gracie and Molly to come down for a couple of weeks. And of course, school was just starting. Gracie was a high school freshman. Gracie and Molly loved school. They loved the school atmosphere and they didn't want to miss the first two weeks of school or the second two weeks of school to go to Disney. They just didn't want to do it. And so I didn't push it. But I, I also look back now and think what a wonderful time that might have been for them. Having said that, Disney has become a safe place for us because she was never there. So it's easier to be there. So yes, we still miss her and we wish we had brought her there, but it's not like she was once there and now she isn't. We've never returned to the Jersey Shore. We've not returned to Clark's Train Bears. You know, there are just places that we can't go because Molly was there and it would be too difficult. I and mean, maybe someday we'll get back to those places, but step by step. Introducing Jack into this dynamic and analyzing my steps over the last so now it's 11 years, it's 2022, so it's 11 years. In this decade, in this century rather, from 2000 to now, I have equal amounts of time of working in the district and not. This is how we pass the time we traumatize people. I can step back and look at it in such a different way. So now I have Jack and, and you know, I had all my hopes up with Gracie and Molly that I would give them this perfect life. And I actually remember when I was sort of making the commitment to jump into a relationship with Roy, 
my biggest hesitation was family disruption. Like Molly and Gracie had this nice idyllic little life here. And how do I disrupt it and change it for something I'm not sure is any better in terms of them, in terms of Gracie and Molly and the quality of their life? Kenny has his flaws, but he's an amazing father. He's not judgmental. He's an amazing father to girls, just understands them in a really non-judgmental way, in a way that I think a lot of dads don't. In really thinking about this particular podcast and what specific things do I talk about, I think for me, this one is just about when you find yourself in that sort of circling the airport, treading water life, where if I had a pervasive feeling in the months leading up to Molly's death, and actually in several of those years, what am I going to do? I have to make a decision and not being able to make a decision. Retreating back into the, into the safety net of dysfunction where I have a home that Molly and Gracie are happy in. For all intents and purposes, my marriage to Kenny ended years and years before Molly died. We cohabitated and we raised kids well together. And we, you know, his business was failing. He was gone most of the time. And, you know, I remember, you know, wanting to make a big jump in terms of the separation. And then I needed to help him save his business. So I started driving the truck and spending hours and hours a week helping Kenny. And then my VLAX suffered. And, you know, it was just this constant back and forth. And it was that way as well with Roy. You know, that's it. I remember he showed up once in the middle of summer and dumped all the stuff of mine that was at his house in my front yard. And I'm just looking at him. It was like skis and my ski bag. And that's it. This is over. And, and I got it. I mean, I, you know, and then two weeks later, we're skydiving together and it's like nothing ever happened and everything is fine. It was this constant back and forth. And I have to say, it kept me extremely distracted from really, really close analysis of Gracie and Molly. Now, in that last year of Molly's life, she had a lot of health issues. She got Bell's palsy where half her face was paralyzed and she had had a tick bite. So they thought Bell's palsy might be Lyme disease and they, they treated her with this antibiotic for Lyme disease. And then she had headaches and her arms and legs hurt. And I thought she had growing pains because she went from this pudgy little fourth grader to a tall, slender fifth grader to an even taller, more slender sixth grader. So all of these things were happening and I wasn't not paying attention. I took her to the ER for the Bell's palsy. They offered a CAT scan and I turned it down. You know, I, ah. Why would I not just do a CAT scan at that time? But, you know, they sort of convinced me she didn't need it, that it probably wouldn't show us anything. I took her to the doctors for the tick. I took her to the doctors for all of it. You know, we went again and again and again. So there's a part of me that feels like I did everything I could, but there's a part of me that also feels that Gracie and Molly spent a lot of time talking about Molly's well-being and how she felt. I remember picking Molly up from school at Runlet and watching Gracie watch her because Gracie was at the high school and we'd pick her up and we, we had this whole car full of kids and we'd drive to dance. All those rides were fun. And Gracie would just watch. And then when she caught sight of Molly, she'd jump out of the car and fly down and they'd be deep in conversation. And what I found out after Molly died was that they talked about how she felt. How'd you feel today? And they just thought it was Lyme disease. And Molly shared with Gracie that she walked around feeling nauseous. And, you know, when I finally found these things out, I'm like, why won't you call me on the phone and tell me I would take you to the doctors? Like, that's not right. And she just didn't want, didn't want to bother anybody just didn't want to bother anybody. But the mother in me thinks I should have known, I should have known. And, you know, so many hours of my life when Kenny and I were living apart and I had the apartment, you know, that's a whole week that I wasn't sleeping here. And then before we finalized the apartment, I stopped sleeping here. I slept at Johanna's house a ton. I just sort of just started couch surfing, like I'm not going to sleep here because we're not supposed to. We, we, Kenny and I had had a, sort of a domestic violence situation. We were having a fight. Molly called the police, God bless her. And they came and took Kenny away and we had to live apart for a while. And you know, so it was just this constant, this constant, I guess, drama, this really constant drama. And why would I perpetuate this? And why would Roy and Kenny continue to perpetuate it? There were times when, you know, I was so panicked about losing Roy. I'd fly down to Marblehead, drive 100 miles an hour, and we'd fight and argue and we'd reunite and we'd get back together and then everything would be fine. And then we wouldn't speak for weeks and weeks and weeks. And then 
we'd be together again. And it was just, you know, I'm not in the place that I can dive inside his mind or inside Kenny's mind. And then the last year of Molly's life, add in this job that ruined all my other jobs. You know, I sometimes just regret so much taking that job because it added a tilt to my life that I didn't have the balance to withstand at the time. And I just took it on and took it on and took it on. Another piece that I'd like to talk about, and I know that this particular episode isn't following a story. It's sort of talking about a period of time, but I've had wonderful feedback from some listeners and surprisingly young listeners, my daughter's ages and slightly younger and slightly older than Gracie and Molly would be. The number of people who have shared with me, well, I would love to share sometime I had an abusive relationship or I need to share about my childhood with my aunt or my mother. And this I love because if, if I'm learning anything from The Body Keeps the Score, it's that putting words in actual like cognitive connection to a traumatic memory takes the trauma, the power of the trauma away. And childhood trauma, now I've had huge, huge traumas. I've had the child abuse trauma. Then I had, I had a couple of traumatic events when I was in college and in my 20s, you know, just around living the dangerous life. I actually lost my first teaching job. So I came up to Concord to, you know, for one year to teach. And then I, you know, here I am 40 years later or 30 years later. But losing my job was a huge trauma. In the time period between losing my job and losing Molly, we almost lost our house. It was going to be auctioned off. That's incredibly traumatic and stressful to know that you're going to lose your home in seven days if you can't, you know, fast mail a check to Texas for $13,000. And we did. I did. I was able to pull that off and get that taken care of. All of this turmoil, all of this, and this wasn't even the undertoad that I spoke of in the last episode. This wasn't even a smooth ocean on top. This was just wave after wave after wave. If I did anything at all positive at this time, it was for the most part keeping Gracie and Molly out of it. It wasn't until the last few months of Molly's life that Gracie and Molly really got a sense of, of the upheaval and how much, how much I really wanted to leave. And, you know, begin a life outside of this life. And that all those things were on the way. And I remember in the bits of conversations I had with Molly about it, she just wanted me. She was disappointed. She wanted me to stay home. Kids want their families. They don't want their families to be broken apart. That was an, an intense piece of it. <laughs> Again, not knowing that the ultimate family decimation was just around the corner. The unbearable heaviness of remembering. If I had to put a theme to this episode, it would be that. The process of doing this podcast sometimes puts me in a really bad place. I cry and cry and cry, or I get really angry. My last one, talking about running in high school, gosh, I went right back, right back to all those memories and how I felt at that time. And, you know, that was 40 years ago. I had my life ahead of me. And there are times that I think, okay, in 40 years from now, I'll be 98. Now, having said that, my biological dad lived to 98. My grandparents lived well into their 90s. I have an aunt that lived to be 100. I have 40 years ahead of me, quite honestly. So when I look at that, I think, okay, so I have a lifetime ahead of me to do amazing things. There are times when I feel like my life is over, that if there were no Jack, Gracie's in Florida, it would just be me and Kenny, but I would likely, I don't know, go on a big, long trip somewhere. Now, do I wish I could do that? No, I was supposed to have Jack. If I'm supposed to go on a big, long trip somewhere, then he's supposed to come with me and somebody's supposed to meet him. I know that sounds hokey, but it's just the way it is. Along those lines, in the years after Molly died, I talked about having all those brain tumors and how much I loved White Plains Hospital. And I spoke of a special they did, like a marketing tool for their new brain health center. They specialize in epilepsy treatment and brain tumors and cancer and trigeminal neuralgia and all of these neurological things. And so I was the face for it. And they came and did a big photo shoot at the Capital Center for the Arts. And I was on a billboard and radio spots. I had to record a radio spot and they took pictures at my CrossFit gym. And if you Google Montefiore.org backslash Barbara, you can watch it. And it's just a little snippet about 
finding my surgery and how I felt and the doctor and I'm interviewed and he's interviewed and there's some video of me working out and things like this. When the news came that Jack had arrived, the hospital called and they want to do, they want to continue my story as a marketing tool for the hospital. So I just spent some time talking to this guy named Ted, who was involved in setting up the last one. They have this unbelievable plan to do this sort of overnight theme, the darkness of night and the sunrise being new opportunities and Jack, the birth of Jack, because the whole reason I found the brain tumors was the process of trying to have Jack. They want this film to be done like in Bryce Canyon or Death Valley or, you know, these beautiful places where you have these amazing sunrises and sunsets and all this kind of stuff. And they have this unbelievably powerful, famous director hired to do it. So here I am in all my trauma and grief thinking I'm a failure. You know, I failed at my relationship with Roy. I failed at my marriage. I failed at mothering Molly. I just feel like a failure in so many ways sometimes. How, am I failing Gracie? Am I looking around at my messy house? Am I failing honoring this beautiful building? Like everything in my life sometimes feels like I'm just a failure. You know, I lose jobs and I lose friends. And what's the common denominator, Barb? You know, it's me. You know, I just get sucked into this. And then I have some pretty amazing people, high up intellect and life experience and people experience saying, you're a force to be reckoned with, Barbara Jean. You're doing amazing things. And so I'm excited about this little marketing spot because A, it will help people get to an amazing medical facility and B, it will showcase and share my struggles and then in the miracle that is him. And it will be a fun experience for me. And so this is when I try very hard to hold on to the positives and things. I think that's everything on my little list here. <laughs> so funny. So as I wrap this one up, I want to always, always be grateful and have gratitude for those of you who listen and, and muddle through the, the not so great episodes to listen to the great ones. It was so easy in the beginning to just talk about Jack and then talk about Molly. Those were very, very point A to point B stories. And 2011 and curled up on, on a recliner watching The Blind Side, which now is on TV every day. I turn it on, I see it. It's bizarre. Waking up on Mother's Day in 2016 on the floor in the living room with Gracie and Molly's dead. In the years, all of the ups and downs in the years in there. You know, it was the best of times and the worst of times, to quote Charles Dickens. You know, it was just, you know, sort of crazy times. And so in trying to share my steps in those years and try to trace them back to the first step of that series of, of events in my life, I'm all over the place. It's like a winding road. The Charles Dickens reference popped into my head. I was crawling in the front hall with Jack this morning and he, we have this like these fabric elephants that hang on a string and there's bells and he likes to look at them and jingle the bells and such. And on the, on the railing there are Molly's dance costumes that she hung there herself. 2016, she hung them up and they've not been moved from there. They fell down. Actually, Gracie was walking by with something and they fell down and we put them back. So they have now <laughs> been rehung up by us, which was hard for me. I have to be honest. I just stood there like, Whoa! but you know, you can't undo. They're on the floor. But I got thinking about Miss Havisham. So Miss Havisham was the woman who was stood up on her wedding day. She sits in this room. She never left the room. She never took off the wedding dress. And so you go in and there's cobwebs everywhere and the moldy wedding cake and the decorations that have wilted and the tables all set and, and her dress sort of falling apart on her body and she's old. And then that was it. And I had this rush of, okay, Barbara, you can't, you can't have your house become Miss Havisham's wedding memory that she can't let go. It was a really profound, a really profound sort of eye-opening experience. I think I'm getting to a point where I'm ready to put things away, put the next round of things away, the red jackets out of the kitchen and costumes off the front hall railing. I don't know. It's a process. I have to say it's just a process and things come as they come, you know, this attachment to things. But I just feel that 
As time goes along, I'm getting more and more ready. Gracie isn't here now. So that bedroom has taken on a whole different meaning now because Gracie's gone. Now, will she come back? Of course she'll come back. But will she ever live here for months and months at a time? I don't know. Yeah, I'm not going to do anything to the room that means she can't have it as hers. But Molly would be off in college. But right now, neither of them would be here if Molly hadn't died. They'd ought be doing their things. I spend a lot of time pondering the what ifs. And perhaps that's unhealthy. But in the process of sharing these stories with everybody, I feel like I have the best therapist ever. It's just me looking back at myself. I'm talking to no one and to everyone all at the same time. Let me wrap this up. So February 6th, 2022, and all the February 6th that count back, back and back and back <laughs> to the beginning of time. Another memory that came up was indoor track, campfire, bonfire in my yard in the snow. Kenny would snow blow out a big area and we'd light a fire and roast weenies. Some of those pictures came up. Chase Shanti, I'm going to say hi, Chase. He's a CrossFit coach and he ran indoor track for me. He just got his physical therapy degree. He's a great guy. He was in one of the pictures. Yay. So anyway, so as always, it's wonderful to talk and share. I hope that what I say makes sense. You know, I always re-listen. I need to redo them. I do. Hopefully I won't have to. At any rate, my final shout out will be this beautiful tie-dye tank top I'm wearing. Of course, I don't remember the name of the shop. My friend Taylor, Taylor Simpson, had a shop in Amesbury called The Nest. It was just tucked in on Main Street there, heading into town was on the left as you walk down near the theater that's now a charter school. Sold all of her little goodies in there. So anytime I was in Amesbury, I would go in there and buy stuff. And so we still have a good friendship. I'm actually going to hook up with her this Wednesday. But the store that's in there now is this equally amazing woman. And she sells primarily clothing. This tie-dye, it's not tie-dye. It looks like tie-dye. So perhaps it is. But she buys these amazing high-quality clothes and like designs them. And so I have a V-neck t-shirt. I have this, which is sort of like a scoop neck, low in the back long sleeve and I have a dress and they're beautiful and the fabric is comfortable and all this. And so when I was thinking about what would I wear for the podcast today, because I took a shower <laughs> when I recorded the last episode yesterday, it was all scuzzy and gross. So anyway, I love my shirt and it's a cute little shop in Amesbury next to the charter school on Main Street. There you go. Her name's very, check her out. She's terrific. Thank you to my CrossFit friends for a great workout this morning. Thank you for Jack for being so smudgy and cute. Thank you to Gracie for being so brave. And thank you to all of you for being willing to share your time with me and listen to my sometimes round and round words. As always, have a good day, everybody. Hey, thanks for listening and for supporting A Thousand Times Steps. I hope you enjoyed the episode and will continue to listen. Feel free to leave a review and share my stories with your friends. Also, please reach out if you have stories to share. I love hearing from and connecting with my listeners. If you would like to know what I'll be talking about down the road, you can find me on Instagram at barb underscore 444, on Facebook as Barb Higgins, and at my website, www.1000tinysteps.com.